Please take your Bibles and uh, meet me in the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah, one of the twelve minor prophets. Again, minor not because of uh, his message is of less importance, but simply because it's a, a short, relatively short book. Don't answer aloud, but maybe just by a show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the name Charles Sheldon? Charles Sheldon, couple, few. I knew, I knew Jeannie would be familiar with the name. Charles Monroe Sheldon is best known for a book he wrote many, many years ago. First published in 1896, the book has become an international bestseller with over 50 million copies sold. I first read the book, was exposed to the book, and then read the book as a newer Christian over 20 years ago, and its main premise has uh, stuck with me ever since. And the book is titled, In His Steps. How many have heard the title? Okay, more hands, more hands. A fictional novel, the story is about a small-town congregation that is challenged to not do anything for an entire year without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? It's about the change that took place in people's lives as they each considered that specific question and how it played out in their church in their homes, in their schools, in their places of work, and throughout their community. Without giving too much away, In His Steps is about a community literally transformed for the cause of Christ. Now here at East Parkway, we have been working to cultivate a community for Christ's cause. And though people today, I'm just speaking in generally, in, in general, though people today poke fun at the idea of WWJD, the question of what would Jesus do is worth asking and taking to heart. Because it expresses the desire to learn, learn God's heart and live it out in the world. Now this morning as we come to the final chapter in the book of Jonah, we remember that the ancient city of Nineveh has just experienced widespread revival. Chapter 3 was about Jonah's ministry in Nineveh, the repentance of Nineveh, and God's mercy toward the people of Nineveh. Yet here in chapter 4, we find an obvious disconnect between Jonah, the supposed man of God, and God himself. A disconnect that has presented itself throughout this story. Jonah, just to be as plain and clear and blunt as possible, Jonah did not share God's heart. He didn't share God's heart for the lost in Nineveh, nor did he want to. As we will see today, Jonah would rather die set in his own ways 
than delight in what God finds delightful. And the lesson for us here is this. Because genuine transformation works from the inside out, you will never have a heart for God until you have a heart surrendered to God. So what I want to do this morning is consider this in two basic parts. Jonah's rant and God's reply. And then I want to close with a few thoughts concerning the state of our hearts. And so let's read this together. I want to begin at chapter 3, verse 10, and move through chapter 4, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 4. Again, chapter 3, Jonah's in Nineveh. He has called out against Nineveh. He has told the people there about uh, divine judgment to come. And to his great surprise, the people of Nineveh heed the warning, confess their sins, and repent. And we're told in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Will you pray with me? And what I want to do is I thought about this this morning, just with our eyes closed and heads and hearts bowed, I just want to give you a brief moment to just silently, quietly Ask God to do the necessary work in your heart today. However you want to word that, whatever that means for you, let's just take a couple of moments for each of us to ask the Lord to do His work in our hearts. Father, you are, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, you are steadfast in love, you are relenting in that you treat us 
not according to what our sins deserve. You are good in every way all the time. You have done good in our lives and in our world in days past. You are doing good in our lives and in our world even today. And you promise to do good in days still to come. And we thank you this morning for... We thank you this morning for that. We thank you for who you are. And we recognize that like Jonah, sometimes our hearts can be very cold and calloused toward you and toward your work in the world. And so we would pray, each of us, as we've already expressed this morning, we would ask that you would do the necessary heart work, that you would make our hearts attentive this morning, that you'd make them ready and receptive, that you'd open our ears to hear your voice, and that you would uh, place within us a desire for change so that our lives would begin to reflect in ever-increasing measure your generous, gracious, merciful, loving heart. Will you do that, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen. This final chapter finds Jonah sulking before God. If chapter 1 was about Jonah running, and chapter 2 about Jonah praying, and chapter 3 about Jonah preaching, then chapter 4 pictures Jonah pouting. Jonah is upset with God over all that has transpired in Nineveh, and in verses 1 through 3, he begins to rant. And here we see his anger, his self-justification, and his, ultimately his resignation. Jonah was angry because as the people of Nineveh began repenting, God began relenting. God turned from his anger toward the Ninevites, which in turn angered Jonah. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, I can become very angry about many things, sometimes too angry. I like to think of myself as having a fair amount of patience and self-control, but when a certain line is crossed or a certain button pushed, I, I can go from calm to crazy more than I care to admit. And I found that my temper is tested most when I perceive injustice. If I feel that others are being treated unfairly or that I am being judged wrongly, uh, that's when I'm most susceptible. That's when my inner lawyer, sorry Steve, that's when my inner lawyer kicks in and I become an impassioned defense attorney whose only objective is either to clear my name or call out the true perpetrator. And that's exactly what's happening here with Jonah in chapter 4. He is ticked. He is furious. As far as he's concerned, a line has been crossed, inexcusably crossed, and God of all people was the one guilty of this great transgression. In fact, the footnote in my ESV Bible reveals that in the original Hebrew, verse 1 literally says that Jonah 
considered God's actions in Nineveh to be exceedingly evil. It wasn't just that Jonah didn't agree with what God did. He actually thought it a moral offense. There is right and there is wrong. And in Jonah's estimation, God was clearly in the wrong. Jonah was indignant. If he was his own emoji, he'd be this one. Or maybe this one. Or even this one. Harry Ironside comments, When all heaven was rejoicing at the repentance, not of one sinner, but of a vast multitude, we're told that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. I want to ask you a question that requires some honest self-assessment on your part. Have you ever been so consumed with your own agenda that you become numb to everything else? So entrenched in your own viewpoint that you've stopped listening and learning from others. So self-absorbed that you find yourself always needing to rationalize and justify your position. Though you try to explain yourself, the truth is that you're not thinking straight and your words are like a ship without a rudder, just aimless and without direction. We've all had moments like that. Certainly Jonah did. And I want you to listen to his, or his explanation of his own anger. To God he complained, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So here in chapter 4, we discover the reason why Jonah ran from God back in chapter 1. Jonah ran not because he thought God was too demanding, to, not, not because he considered God to be a tyrant, not because God was distant or uncaring. No, no, no. Jonah ran because he believed God lacked good sense. Can you believe this guy? Jonah took some of God's divine attributes and instead of giving thanks for them, he used them to build a case against the Lord. Jonah wanted God to come down hard on Nineveh. Sure, there are times to be gracious and compassionate. There are times to be slow to anger and abounding in love. And there are times when God should relent and forgive. But this wasn't one of those occasions as far as he was concerned. As far as Jonah was concerned, God lacked discernment in this instance. God should have been ruthless toward Nineveh, not 
relenting and merciful. They had it coming after all, and they got off scot-free. How dare God allow that to happen? Jonah was so consumed by his own agenda, so entrenched and self-absorbed, that he completely lost touch with reality. Instead of praising God, he literally faulted God for being too gracious, too compassionate, too patient, too loving, and too willing to forgive. He actually used God's kindness to justify his own disobedience, telling God that that's why he fled for Tarshish in the first place. Jonah's thinking was entirely upside down. The calluses that had so obviously formed around his heart were so thick that he couldn't even fathom why God is the way he is. But the kicker is that rather than ask for a heart like God's, he instead asked to die. Just think about that. Think about how calloused we can become if we're not careful. Think about how deep-seated our personal preferences and prejudices and even theological preconceptions can be. When we view the world through the lens of our own likes and dislikes, we risk conceiving a God of our own making that exists only to justify our own views and actions. And if you don't believe me, just consider this example. Whether you are a Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter which. Chances are that you see the world through that specific lens and have shut yourself off to any alternate possibility. And you've thus convinced yourself that God himself champions your political party of choice. Like Jonah in this chapter, you can't even comprehend the idea that God may think differently than you. Jonah so disliked the Ninevites that when God displayed kindness instead of wrath, his motherboard began to short circuit. He simply could not compute And the idea of living in a world where love for enemy prevailed was more than he could handle. Therefore, now, O Lord, he resigned, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's rant was an expression of anger toward God, but... In verse 4, God's reply quickly set the record straight. In just one brief sentence with just one well-phrased question, God revealed the enormous holes in Jonah's case. Like a game of Jenga, with this one question, God removed the one block that caused Jonah's argument to just come tumbling down. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? In other words, what 
possible right or reason do you have to find fault with me? We might say it this way. Are you serious right now? Like, Jonah, are you, are you really going to go here and have this out with me? Jonah seems to be forgetting how God had just treated him with the very same compassion he displayed toward Nineveh. When Jonah was drowning in the Mediterranean, God rescued him. When Jonah called out to the Lord from the belly of the great fish, God heard his voice and answered him. When Jonah knew his life was fainting away, God saved him. To read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is to hear the words of a man who had received goodness from God a thousand times over. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah exclaimed with thanksgiving then. And yet when God extended his saving work to include Nineveh, rather than giving thanks, Jonah took God to task. Jonah measured by a double standard. He probably genuinely appreciated how God was gracious toward him and was sincerely grateful, but he didn't want those he deemed unworthy to receive the same grace. And the takeaway here is, please hear this, just because you had a salvation experience yesterday doesn't mean you don't have to fight the pride and sin in your heart today. Because if you do, or I'm sorry, if you don't, if you don't do battle with that pride and sin in your heart, if you don't, you may end up back where you started, looking down on others and running from God. We who have received divine grace and mercy, who have experienced God's slowness to anger and His steadfast love, who know the immense freedom and blessing of having our sins forgiven, are we okay when others receive it too? Now, of course, we say we are. But in our heart of hearts... Do we sometimes think otherwise? We look at how far short others have fallen, how immoral they are by comparison, and don't we sometimes secretly believe that we're not that bad? Sure, we have our faults and failures. We're not perfect after all. Yet when compared to some, we secretly assume that we bring more to the table. And therefore, we are more deserving. Remember the parable Jesus told about the laborers in the vineyard? How those who came into the vineyard at the final hour received the same benefit as those who had been in the vineyard all day long. Remember how upset the all day long folks became, uh, how they thought themselves more deserving, how unfair it all seemed to them when the less thans got the exact same blessing. 
And to them the master said, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what, what belongs to me? Basically, he said, What right do you have to begrudge my generosity? And that's essentially what God said to Jonah. And now what he's saying to us. Do you do well to be angry? The question isn't hypothetical. God expects an answer. And in fact, we'll ask it again in verse 9. God's reply to Jonah's rant, catch this, is his way of getting us to examine our hearts. You know, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now. And the importance of my heart, and I'm talking now about my actual physical heart, is becoming more real to me. And so I've begun to, again, exercise regularly. Uh, I'm meeting now with my doctor regularly. Uh, my wife is trying to get me to eat more healthy, which I sometimes like and often don't. I'm trying to get proper rest. All of this is coming to me from the doctor. Trying to get proper rest, which can be very difficult, as you know, in a go-go-go culture like ours. But I'm doing all of these things and more because my health is important. My heart is important. And what I want to say to us this morning is your spiritual heart health is even more important. So when was the last time you checked the health of your heart spiritually? Because Jonah's problem was at the heart level, let me offer three final thoughts on having a heart for God. First, identify your idols. At its core, at its core, Jonah's issue was idolatry. He wanted certain things more than he wanted what God wanted. Now, you, you have to understand, I know you do understand, not every idol looks like an idol. The idols that look like idols are easy to spot. But the ones that root their way into our hearts are not nearly as conspicuous. Have you been following the, um, the controversy surrounding the NFL protests? So there's this, there's this controversy that's, that's groundswell of controversy that, that comes over kneeling at the national anthem or standing because those who began kneeling are 
are speaking out. It's their way of speaking out against some injustices they see in, the, in society. And I just learned yesterday that this has now skipped the pond, and now people in Europe are doing the same thing, and they're, they're hearkening back to what's going on here in America. So I don't know what you think about that controversy, whether your position, what your position is about kneeling or standing during the national anthem, but I do want you to know that whatever it is, it reveals something about your heart. Now, personally, personally, I believe we should stand. But I also believe that the cause for which these men are protesting has good merit too. Which has caused me to wonder if we're in danger of idolizing even the national anthem. Are we so insistent on singing that particular song in that particular way before that particular football game that we've stopped caring about the widespread concerns that adversely affect entire communities of people? Jonah's idols, you know what his idols included? His idols included his theology his personal reputation and his national pride. Now, theology and reputation and love of country obviously are not at all out of place as long as they remain in their place. But for him, they consumed a disproportionately large place that left little room in his heart for God and God's work in the world. They took up real estate in his heart that belonged to God alone. So what are the things in your heart that are taking up that real estate that belongs to God? Where your wants, your preferences, your desires have taken a higher position in your heart than what God wants and desires. One of the first steps toward a heart for God is knowing what's crowding God out of your heart. So identify your idols. Number two, celebrate grace. Celebrate grace at every turn. Grace is stunning in what it offers, isn't it? I mean, that God would pursue us in our our idolatrous and fallen state, meet us where we are, and lift us up out of sin's miry bog is truly remarkable. To celebrate what God is doing in our lives is to cultivate a heart of gratitude and praise. But then to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of others is equally and exponentially heart healing. Once a month, I meet with a group of pastors from our district. And we gather to share life and ministry together, to read and pray, to, uh, pray through Scripture together, to encourage one another. And last month, one of the pastors about my age was sharing in a moment of honesty 
he was sharing how he's praying now for real heart change in, in him, not his congregation, for real heart change, how he has come to realize how cynical and skeptical and stereotypical he is and how he doesn't want to be like that anymore. He doesn't want to lump people into fixed categories like clean or unclean, likable or unlikable, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, black or white, or any of the various labels we're so prone toward using. Instead, he said, I want to see beauty the way God sees beauty. I want to see people the way God sees people. I want to love people the way God loves people, people who are made, who he made in his very own image. In East Parkway, when we begin to see beauty like that, to see people like that, to love people like that, that's when our eyes are most open to sightings of grace. Jonah's problem was like that of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who just couldn't deal with the fact that Jesus actually cared for, listened to, and spent time with sinners. Now, are we to sit upon our high horse and shout down at those who don't think and speak and act like us? Are they beyond the circle of redemption? But what about truth, you say? We should stand for truth. Absolutely, we should stand for truth. But the way of Christ is not grace or truth. Please hear this. It's grace and truth. We beheld His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the truth is that we all need grace. And so look to celebrate it at every turn. In, not only in your life, but in the lives of others too. And stop expecting people to move from, from step one to step 25 in one, leaps, one leap. A move from negative 10 to negative 5 is a positive move. Celebrate that grace. And then number three. Long for a heart made new and clean. Long for a heart made new and clean. The book of Jonah reveals the heart of God and forces us to ask the question, do I have a heart like that? And the answer to that is, Maybe a little. But there's more work to be done. And the beauty is that God will do the work. As with Jonah, God confronts us with our need. He confronts us with our idols. Time and again, he confronts us with his work in the world. And thus he reminds us that he's working on us too. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised to give his people a new heart by which they would know him and return to him as Lord. 
Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised to replace stony, sinful hearts with hearts that He makes brand new. So maybe you're here this morning recognizing that you've been cold or calloused toward God and the things of God. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You do, you don't, you do not need to be afraid of confessing your need of a new heart. You don't have to, to wallow in guilt or regret. You don't have to hide in shame. You just need to admit your need. You, you need to admit that your heart isn't where it needs to be or where God wants it to be, and your admission needs to be accompanied by your desire to trust and follow Him. And the biblical model for this is none other than King David, who in Psalm 51 after being confronted with his sinful heart, cried out to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and remove not your Holy Spirit from me. Instead, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Will you make that your prayer today? Entrusting your life to the Lord. God, my heart is not where it needs to be. God, my heart is not where it needs to be. Make it new. Make it clean. Make it yours. Identify your idols. Celebrate grace at every turn. And long for a heart made new and clean. Because you will never, never, never have a heart for God until you have a heart surrendered to God. May God bless you all. Amen. Father, impress, impress these things upon us often. Take these cold and calloused hearts and make them new. Make them clean. Make them yours. And make them to beat for the things that cause your heart to beat. The things for which your heart beats. Make us to be men and women after your heart. Men and women who love the Lord and love taking part in the work of the Lord in the world. Make us to be a community for the cause of Christ. Amen.